Bocelli Effect is sponsored by WallStreetWindow.com and listeners like you. And now, and now the, most, the most underrated voice in all, in all media, Chuck Bocelli. April 29, 2021, allegedly, according to that thing we call a calendar. And this indeed is the show you were looking for. Guess how I know that? Because you found it. Anyway, it is Thursday, Thursday, the second to last, normally second to last broadcast day of the week. Um, but we have had a couple of, uh, well, missteps this week. <laughs> Glad that I didn't have a problem tonight. Why? Because uh, we're continuing on with the Larry Hancock collection, although this is going to be a bit of a supplement. Why? Because, well, not only do we have Stu Wexler with us in addition to Larry Hancock, but somebody else who maybe you guys are not entirely familiar with, but I'm sure I'll get emails correcting me about that. Gary Murr is with us as well. And uh, we are not talking about the King assassination tonight. We're not talking about the domestic terrorism and that circumstance. None of that tonight, I think. But then again, who knows? <laughs> because we are going to be talking about what happened in 1968, June 6th of 1968, if my memory serves me correctly, when Robert F. Kennedy was killed in Los Angeles. And, well, we all know that this is, yet again, one of these things that is a case study in the possibility of conspiracy. And the reason why I tripped over that is because I was looking at something that said conspiratas as I spoke. Sorry. But anyway, <laughs> um, conspiratas ubiquitous. Anyway, what happened in Los Angeles? And, by the way, how is it that Larry Hancock and Stu Wexler have handled it? Yes, indeed, these two wrote together uh, uh, or talked together and worked together on this and both have written and studied the case in a way that, again, doesn't necessarily fit with the uh, alt-media narrative, the conspiracy culture. Maybe it fits with it. Maybe it doesn't. I guess we're going to see in a minute. And you guys know that I've had some interest in this if you've been around the show for a while, but... As per usual, and as in most cases, the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy is not always focused upon. Gotta say, it's one of the more undercovered of the significant political assassinations of the 60s. And quite frankly, again, I stand by my statement that progressive thought in the United States was essentially decapitated when the assassinations of various leaders occurred, uh, to, to my mind, beginning with Medgar Evers in 1963 before John F. Kennedy was killed on the same day that Aldous Huxley died. Yeah, read that any way you want, but still, there was a lot more going on, and it progressively got worse, and then we could go into COINTELPRO, but again, tonight's focus is going to be on the Robert F. Kennedy assassination. So once again, I want to welcome back Larry Hancock. First, Larry, how are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm fine, Chuck. Glad to be back. You know, and and this is not one of the things that you um, that 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 somebody might say you put out a lot of books about, is it? No, it's not. It's kind of interesting. It just again, as we usually do for context, Stu and I researched it. We went over and over it again, and we got to the point where we almost had a book. And actually, if people go to the Mary Farrell Foundation website and look for essays on incomplete justice you actually find that work 
with the work mm -hmm. that we did, a lot of essays. But Ch Stu can check me on this. The problem was we, we knew there was a conspiracy. We found the conspiracy, but we couldn't set our minds to exactly who the ultimate conspirators were, so we didn't publish it as a book. That's This is the only one. Like, we always find conspiracy, but it's not the same one other people find. Mm -hmm. Well, there, there's that, and also... You know, as we, you and I have discussed this before. So, unless you're new to the show, you've probably heard a discussion between me and Larry about this before. But we didn't always have Stu with us. And that's an important part of, well, what is over there at the Mary Fowler Foundation. And I'm going to give you guys the links to that in the show notes. So, don't worry, that'll be there. Um, so, you can go and take a look at it for yourself. But uh, as per usual, Stu, um, you know, first, how are you doing? But but here you are, the the uh, increasingly explosive element that comes into Larry's work. <laughs> and I don't mean to say that you're always at second fiddle because, again, uh, a, a worthwhile presenter, thinker, researcher in and of yourself without Larry, I think. <laughs> but even so, the combination of the two of you, is uh is is very interesting but anyway how you doing and uh you know where where we're going to begin we're going to have to talk about gary murr next so um you know Stu, again welcome back and how are you i'm doing well um i love working with with larry and gary is one of these underrated researchers who does unbelievable work is always providing Sorry, Stu. Folks, yeah, there you and go. is content to. You can you hear me now. Yes, you cut out for a second there, but go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, uh, I always love working with Larry, and in fact, our King stuff in many ways emerged from what we were first doing with the RFK assassination. Gary is an unbelievable researcher and has been for decades. I mean, we're talking about somebody who communicated with the great Harold Weisberg. And the three of us have worked to try and get, and he'll be mentioned, I'm sure, a lot tonight, the work of John Hunt, the late John Hunt, connected to RFK, out to folks. But if, if I could add, you know, the one thing that's so interesting about the Bobby Kennedy assassination is on the surface, it would be the assassination that I think virtually, you know, layperson off the street would be like, oh, that's that's an easy one. That's that's done deal. One person, Sirhan, Sirhan, and, you know, you can go on to other things. I would argue, and, you know, I think all of us here uh, have researched the JFK assassination with a mind towards both, you know, a conspiratorial element to it, but also the nature of the investigation and the cover-up and the... Uh, sort of corrupt nature of cover-ups, I would argue that the Robert Kennedy assassination and is is actually, if you look into it, the most clear-cut, the most open-and-shut example of where the official version of events of the three major assassinations falls apart and is actually the most blatant, mm. almost laughable if you took it to the innocence project the folks like uh barry sheck they would think you're making it up and that it's an april fool's joke how badly this thing was investigated how corrupt the investigation was 
Um, but as Larry said, we kind of certainly in the immediate sense of where we think things are, we once again, we sort of also break from the conventional sort of conspiratorial uh, interpretation and go in a different direction with that. Mm-hmm. So um, I hope and I'm very glad and I'll say again because you're about to introduce him. I'm very glad that the listeners are getting exposed to Gary because he's got brilliant stuff dating back to the early 70s and the J.D. Tippett murder. So he's been on these kinds of things for a very long time. Well, actually, you you know what's funny about that is that just uh, today when I was speaking to Gary before the show, we were just making sure that his Skype was functioning. Uh, he, He was telling me about some of the work he did related to John Connolly. And here's the thing. Gary Murr... Uh, you know, no offense to you, Gary. You're not the guy that the conspiracy documentary people are calling very much. You're not the guy that people have seen a lot, but you've been around, well, you know, excuse me again, forever. <laughs> okay. Um, and you've exactly. done incredibly meticulous work. Uh, and And I know this just from having seen a couple of your presentations. And quite honestly... I'm somebody who's usually very familiar with, like, everybody. <laughs> um, and only a few years ago did I become familiar with you, your methodology, your presentation. And I, I believe you and I have been in the same room at some point. Um, but I don't know if we ever were actually introduced um, until we started to speak a few days ago or try to speak a few days ago. Anyway, story there, but we'll leave it alone. <laughs> but but either way, um, it's, it's really great to have you along. Um, now, it's a curiously odd spot that you're in when it comes to the RFK assassination, but, uh, but, but I'll let you explain that. I just want people to know that, uh, yeah, Gary Murr, and the last name is spelled M-U-R-R, you can find he's been a presenter. You can find he's been a participant. You can find, you know, they don't let me on the education forum, but, um, <laughs> you know. Don't you, ask why. Yeah, don't, don't ask why. For some reason, I've been disqualified at some point from being there, and I, anyway, whatever. <laughs> Thing is, um, anybody who's familiar with that, the forums, I mean, you got to know who Gary Murr is. You got to have at least seen his name. But again, you don't go out there with very wild claims of any kind. You go out there with some very good, uh, accessible explanations of some very complex things, especially if you study the minute details of them. This is what you do. And that is the best general explanation for who you are is, but I'd prefer if you introduced yourself. I mean, if Larry Hancock wants to assist, he is always good for uh, the assist on the introductions of people. I love that about Larry, by the way. Uh, but but by all means, I'd like you to introduce yourself to my audience, who I am sure a lot of them are not familiar with you, although, again, I'm sure I'm going to get emails. Some of them probably already are. But, uh, but, you know, who is Gary Murr? How is it that you got involved? How long ago did you get involved in political assassination research, mainly through JFK, and then briefly we could also find out why it is that we have you here for an rfk show all right thanks jack i appreciate that and uh, uh hello from canada to all your listeners uh contrary to popular belief i do not have snow on my front lawn uh, a week ago perhaps but uh <laughs> things are better now fair enough um 
to answer your question about how I became involved in it, uh, strictly by accident. I've told this story before, uh, perhaps not to uh, anyone listening in your audience. I don't know if I've ever told Larry and Stu this, but I was working at that time, and I was a member of the Book and Month Club, and Mark Lane's Rush to Judgment came. Uh, being the lazy sod that I was, I didn't return it in time, and I was forced to keep it. So on a midnight shift, I read it, became intrigued. Um, thereafter, picked up a copy of Harold Weisberg's book, and it kind of spread from there. I was the first Canadian, and perhaps one of the very few, who purchased the 26 volumes of the Warren Commission hearings and exhibits. And uh, after I contacted Harold a few times, I made up a few monographs for him. He would send me letters asking me to uh, look into this, look into that, and that's really where it uh, where it grew from there. I, I was fairly close to Harold uh, for about a decade. I studied in, in depth for about a decade. Uh, part of the West Coast crew came on board. I knew Fred Newcomb very well, Perry Adams. I've known David Lifton for a long, long time. And, and uh, it just kind of snowballed from there. I got away from it for uh, uh, quite a few years in the uh, after the House Select Committee on Assassinations, but came back to it in the early 1990s. Um, took several trips to the National Archives in the late 1990s. Uh, um, I used to stay, not at Harold's, but I used to stay in Frederick, Maryland, go down to the archives during the day, look at files that I had pulled, and I'd come back and eat, and then I'd go over to Harold's house and roam in his basement going through his files in the evening. But uh, and it, it just kind of grew from there. As far as their, the RFK uh, aspect of it is concerned, um, I met John and Stu and Larry through research I'd done in the JFK assassination. I believe my first encounter with John was probably I had copied uh, some indexing devices that uh, Henry Heidelberg had done for the FBI lab and I forwarded copies of those to either John and or Stu and it just kind of snowballed from there um, I miss John unfortunately I never got the opportunity to meet him in person we exchanged uh, an awful lot of information research information for at least a decade and, and uh, but the RFK thing how I came directly to that is I was uh, I was presented the opportunity several months ago to have a look at John's work on the Kennedy assassination in conjunction with his unpublished manuscript mm -hmm. and I spent several months with it going over it and uh, uh, was not uh, disappointed I always have thought that John was one of the very best researchers I've ever met in my life um, fantastic research right well and let me let me actually yeah let me actually pause you there Gary sure. because I would like Larry Hancock if you don't mind Larry to um, again I, John Hunt was never on this show so it is possible there are people that don't know who he was. Again, not the guy who gets the crazy headlines. He's not the guy that they call upon to uh, make a point of how crazy a conspiracy theorist is, you know. <clears throat> Never was he that guy. And quite frankly, uh, people that are very familiar with the JFK case might have missed John Hunt's work too. Because, again, very meticulous. It wasn't a constant barrage. He was never on a PR campaign, this guy. Um, and, you know, look, if you want to look at something very interesting, I guess if you entered into a search engine, John Hunt and uh, pho photographing uh, CE399, you might find some interesting threads about John Hunt's work, and I'm not saying that's all he did. I'm just saying that that's a good place to start. But, Larry, if somebody goes, well, who's John Hunt? Because he created a manuscript about RFK that obviously Gary got a hold of and Yes, indeed, John Hunt is no longer among us. Because, um, <clears throat> again, no offense to Gary, but if I could add John Hunt on, I would have. <laughs> um, but 
you know, listen, and it's not because Gary is here just to fill that slot, by the way. As a matter of fact, I have some ideas about having Gary on about some stuff that nobody talks about. Um, but we'll get to that later. Larry, how is it that you would give a snapshot of who John Hunt was and uh, why it is that he is uh, really, I know he was a valuable part of the research community. Most people that are in the research community know that. But to the casual observer, what would be the key points? What would you say about John Hunt? The best way to describe John Hunt, I, I think, is that many of us are, are considered to be obsessive in terms of documents, uh, obsessive in terms of witness testimony. Uh, John certainly loved documents, but he usually did documents in conjunction with physical evidence. Right. Uh, John was obsessive about forensics, about crime scenes, about evidentiary issues in a way that, that some of us document folks are not. I mean, when it came to a piece of evidence or the crime scene, he would dig through an awesome amount of material proactively. I mean, going out to people, law clerks, archives, uh, basically to collect information on the physical evidence and retest it. Mm -hmm. Is it, in other words, we didn't see it now, does it match what they said about it? And he was constantly testing it. And I, I think the best way, and and in regard to what he did with RFK, one of the reasons his, his work is so astonishing is he really recreated the crime scene at the Ambassador Hotel in the pantry, mm -hmm. recreated it with this model that was scaled to the centimeter level, and redid all of the crime scene work with all of their measurements. And that gives you an idea of, of how obsessive he was with looking at the evidence. And, and in doing so, basically discovered the degree to which they, <laughs> the official story was wrong. And, and I, I think at that point, I will say, one of the reasons John's work was so important is it, it corroborates what Stu said earlier, and that the RFK assassination an investigation has to be the worst case of police work that I've ever seen or that there could be. In fact, it wasn't incompetent. It wasn't incomplete. It was just flat intentionally wrong. Uh -huh. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. But that's the sort of thing that John could find by the work he did that, for example, I never would. Right. Right. No, I understand. And that's that's the key element here, because to me, what is and this is my personal commentary. And I want, you know, Gary to uh, to help us out with why it is. I think this way. <laughs> OK. And I think Gary will be able to answer this. Here's the thing. You know, Stu hinted at it. Larry said it. Um, I, and and quite frankly, it should be blatantly obvious that I mean, even Vince Bugliosi, for God's sake, at one point Yikes. said that this is the most obvious case of the official story's not right. I'm paraphrasing. He said something about a marijuana cigarette or whatever. But point is, it's it's so blatantly obvious that there is something wrong with the official story here. It's not, you don't have to dig all that deep to begin with, but if you do, what does it do? It gets worse and worse and worse. And look, 
it, it, I, I don't know if it's just flat intentional because I, 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 I got to assume there's some incompetence involved. Uh, I, I don't know why. It's just because, well, people. But on top of that, uh, you know, evidence disappeared. Evidence was mishandled. Evidence was taken into account, then not taken into account. <laughs> and it, it is a strange journey just to look at it on the surface from the documents alone. But to make it even worse is if you actually go through the trouble. And we've seen this on TV shows. We're going to show you. We're going to reenact it. Um, and, yeah, it's usually slanted based on a you know a, a predetermined conclusion and all that. And we know this. But here's the thing. John Hunt, the way he did stuff, I guarantee you it wasn't a predetermined. This was really a, a, a search for... What in the world went down here? Because, well, how about we touch upon the official story first, Gary, if you don't mind. And, uh, you know, again, I mean, I would leave this open for Stu to come in. I love the way Stu explains things. But I would love for Stu to jump in on it if Gary misses anything. But how about we go official story and just a couple of the obvious blatant problems with official story to begin with? Because for me... um. And, and, you know, look, I'm not even saying that I believe that Sirhan Sirhan was an innocent victim of the situation. I'm not one of these guys. I'm also not going to talk about mind control, by the way. <laughs> okay? Because you don't need any of that to just know that we don't have a proper conclusion here to begin with before we even get to the alleged assassin. And in this case, quite honestly... Uh, again, weird thing going to come out of my mouth. There's more evidence that Lee Harvey Oswald is your man than there is Sirhan Sirhan when it comes to this case, in my opinion. <laughs> okay, so I'll just leave that there. But Gary, the official explanation, first of all, in short, because it is very short and very shallow, um, you know, how would you represent that to people? And how would you begin to say that you know, first of all, John, and maybe in your opinion, if you like, uh, where where the problems begin in that case? All right. Um, to use a phrase that John uses in his manuscript, that if there ever was a slam dunk in a political assassination, this appeared to be that slam dunk, particularly on the surface. Uh, the individual allegedly involved is caught red-handed with the gun in his hand. Uh, obviously, he was a, he shot at RFK, the question becomes did he actually fire the shot that killed RFK? And I think really what happened here is that um, is in the beginning it was a uh, excuse me, no problem. Less than two hours after the RFK shooting it was the uh, a gentleman a criminalist with the LAPD Scientific Investi Investigative Division uh, SID, Dwayne Wolfer who was put in charge of investigating the ballistics and the trajectory of what transpired in the pantry area of the ambassador. Now, initially, in the immediate hours after the shooting, Wolfer believed that he had seven wounds in the victims because RFK wasn't the only one that was shot that evening. There were five others who were wounded on that same evening. And he had an eight-shot revolver that was recovered from the hands of the alleged assassin. So, in essence, what that meant is that he had one extra bullet that he had had to be located somewhere in the pantry area. So he starts with the assumption that um, there were seven wounds. He had an eight-shot 
pistol. And so therefore, what happened to the other eighth shot? And it basically just snowballs from there. And uh, so he... Well, do, 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 do me a favor. Do me a favor here, Gary, and hit your mute button for a minute just to let your Skype catch up with compression while I fill in this part. Uh, okay. The eight-shot Ivor Johnson pistol, which was allegedly, again, I say allegedly because I don't trust uh, almost anything by the time we're done looking at this investigation, uh, allegedly recovered on the scene, f- pried from the hand of Sirhan Bashir Sirhan, okay? He was tackled by individuals who were involved in Bobby Kennedy's security, who happened to be in the pantry. Uh, there are other wounded people. I am convinced that, uh, you know, Sirhan may have indeed wounded several people um, based on the evidence that they present, that that it is a possibility, okay? Um, But there's problems here. And they begin with the fact that you have a guy who was captured right then and there. Uh, You know, uh, Rosie Greer was involved in this. Uh, Rayford Johnson, I believe, got involved in it. all these guys jumping on this little guy, Sirhan Sirhan, uh, they did indeed pry a pistol out of his hand, according to their accounts. Although I got to tell you, some eyewitness accounts vary as to what happened in this very tight corridor. Because remember, this is right after Bobby Kennedy had made a speech after winning the primary in California. And this was, uh, you know, on his way out the door. This was an exit path for him. And going through the kitchen area, through, you know, what everybody refers to as the pantry. And uh, I urge people to go back and listen to the firsthand account from Jamie Scott Enyard, uh, who was in the pantry area, just behind the action uh, to to Bobby Kennedy's back. Um, And this has led to a great deal of speculation because, well, eight shots in this twenty-two revolver, that's a fact as far as I can tell if indeed this is the weapon used um, but then again when you start to dig into that evidence and you start to dig into the documentation of it and everything else well you start to have questions but even assuming that you still have this problem of if you were to picture this in your mind that this uh jumping on Sirhan Sirhan, who is allegedly firing wildly into a group of people, um, somehow scores a shot which appears to have ended up being the fatal shot to Bobby Kennedy, who died the next day, Um, you know, from the head wound. And it was toward the back of his head, which, by all accounts, Sirhan Sirhan was never around the back of Bobby Kennedy during any of this. So this is this is the original thing, but somehow or other they say he did it. Um, I think that's a fair summation of that part. But Gary, go ahead. I hope your Skype has now uh, uh, gotten a bit of its compression back, and we can very clearly hear right. what other problems might have emerged besides what I just said. <laughs> can you hear me all right now? Yes, I can. That's fine. Actually, Stu might be able to uh, uh, chime in on this, but. I believe John indicates early in his manuscript that initially Bobby Kennedy wasn't made to make that right-hand turn when he came from the from the ballroom. He was intended the intention was to go in a different direction, and at the last minute that has changed and he's led into the pantry area corridor. But uh, 
your question surrounding the uh, viability of the handgun that was taken from Sirhan, you indicated that John uh, did not start with any preconceived notions about this. And actually, at one point, he does admit that to his satisfaction, he's convinced that the weapon that was taken from Sirhan Sirhan was the weapon that the LAPD have in their possession and that they used um, in, in conducting various tests. But what John shows with the official evidence, and this is evidence gathered by Dwayne Wolfer and members of the LAPD, is that it proves conclusively that Sirhan Sirhan did not fire at least the fatal shot that uh, killed RFK. And there's a number of reasons for that conclusion. Um, the least of which is that the burn pad RFK's head, as you mentioned, conclusively proved that he was shot from extremely close range. I believe, and again, I, I could stand corrected on this, somewhere in the area of one half, one inch to no more than three inches away at the point of impact. And you're right. Witness testimony strongly suggests that Sirhan never got into that position when it got completely around behind RFK to fire that fatal shot. John's work is extremely complex. Um, we owe him a great debt of gratitude for what he did do over a number of years um, between the UMass Archives, uh, the Mary Farrell Foundation, and he personally making a trip out to California to view first uh, uh, material that he knew about, was aware of, in some instances got a run around from uh, people out in California, be it an archivist or be it members of the LAPD, and he had to go and see things firsthand for himself. And had it not been for John's work, we wouldn't have the conclusions that Stu feels so strongly about, and I, I believe Larry does too, that there's no question that this investigation was a charade right from the start. It changes as it goes along. People spoke untruths, knowingly so, at least John's contention is that that is so. And it's not only Dwayne Wolfer, it's also the highly touted and noted uh, coroner in L.A. at the time, uh, Dr. Noguchi. Now, it's curious that you would say that Noguchi spoke an untruth because one of the things that everybody <clears throat> who familiarizes themselves with the case looks at when it comes to testimony is, is Noguchi's testimony, in fact, regarding the stifling, which accounts for how close this pattern, uh, you know, basically a deposit of gases from the firing of the weapon uh, on the back of RFK's ear, for lack of better terminology here, um, which does denote exactly how close the weapon would have to be. Noguchi conducted those tests and is one of the guys that everybody points to. Right. And says, look at what he has to say. Now, there's there's other accounts, by the way, even on that night, which were recorded via videotape, which don't surface easily. Uh, but I used to have, well, uncut pieces of videotape from various television stations. And I got to tell you that um, there were accounts of a security guard returning fire during this. And so happens there was a security guard behind Robert F. Kennedy, uh, who's, quite frankly, uh, you, you see a clip-on tie on the floor. If you take a look at some of the famous images of Bobby Kennedy bleeding on the floor there in the pantry, you see a clip-on tie laying next to him if you're paying attention, and it came off of this particular security guard who has become a person of interest in the case, and that's, saying Eugene Caesar. Um, anyway, I'm saying there was actually a witness account right then, contemporaneous with the events, where they said that a security guard had actually fired. Now, 
According to uh, Thane Eugene Caesar's statements afterwards, he pulled his weapon, never fired. But, look, these things happen during the course of a real event that really only happens in a matter of seconds. And people's memories, as much as people think they're like recording devices, they are not. A lot of things could happen, but when you line up the varying accounts, you line up the people that are supposed to be looking at this afterwards who are not under the pressure of time to record in their memories what's happening. You come up with some very different conclusions. And you pointed to Stu about this. So I'm wondering, Stu, where should we take this from here before we go back to Gary a little more on John's work? Um, well, let me flesh out a little bit of what you just said and and part of it really does illustrate how good of a researcher john is and was john and i were 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 very friendly we used to i used to go to the national archives and i would drive down from new jersey and then on my way back because i would go early in the mornings to get there when the when the when nara opened in maryland in college park Mm -hmm. i would come back and a lot my evening would usually be a phone call to larry and then a phone call to john and for a while, it would be about – for a few years, it was about JFK stuff, and then I would do JFK stuff, and he would do RFK stuff, and then I would do MLK stuff, and he would do RFK stuff. And we kind of – at that point, I don't want to say went our separate ways, but we were sort of locked into our two different areas, and you know we would have these long conversations. He would tell me about his trip to UMass. He would tell me about trips he had to San Diego, and – Meticulous applies to him. Meticulous, by the way, applies to Gary very much so too. And, you know, John, how he thinks and how he doesn't necessarily just dive in and accept conventional wisdom. It is absolutely the case that it's hard to put the witness testimony together and get a pistol from Sirhan's gun close to RFK's head. Uh, But John used to always point out to me, it's, it's awfully hard. You can't find the witnesses, and this gets to what you say about how sudden, violent, unexpected events can play games with our minds and our witness testimony. John used to always point out the problem with that is it can't fully get you there because we can't really put anybody else there with a firm, widespread witness testimony either. But John established two things about the shooting – that alongside the, the, the burn patterns absolutely conclusively show it couldn't have been uh, Sirhan Sirhan firing that particular bullet, the headshot. One of that, one of the issues is the size of the entry wound. It is way too uh, big to be from a close range 22. Uh, and John and I do this too. Whenever I try and deal with issues of forensic evidence involving these kinds of cases, I try and make sure that when I approach people, I give them as little detail as to who it is and who the case is about and get their sort of unvarnished, unbiased opinion. John was a master at that. And one of the my favorite things he did is he went to one of the go-to anti-conspiracy folks for multiple cases. A guy named Larry Sturdivan, who is a well-known wound ballistics expert 
very anti-conspiracy uh, theory in the JFK case and pretty much every case. Right. And he just described to Sturtevant the nature of the wounds and asked a basic question, could this entry hole be shot be the result of a close range firing from a 22 and Sturtevant adamantly stridently said no way and by the way that is what uh John got from multiple independent experts and so again that's somebody who if there's ever and later on he tried to do a dance when he found out that it was RFK Sturtevant did of course but but the it was very clear cut that the wound is too big. And then the second thing that he did and he uncovered was that the dimensions of the bullet fragments that were still in the head when x-rays were taken are absolutely physically, geometrically impossible to have been a fragment from a twenty two bullet of the likes that Sirhan fired. So John took what was what many people would just pass off. Oh, of course, he couldn't have fired that close range. He took it to a much more in-depth level that can survive any kind of scrutiny. Mm-hmm. And so when I say it's a hundred percent, there's no like no one's trying to come up with the you know super magic bullet theory. John showed pointed out the issue with the X-ray dimensions. No one responded to him. And no one has since. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it could the headshot, excuse the phrase, the point blank, the headshot could not have come, excuse the pun, from Sirhan's pistol. And Gary is absolutely right. Uh, John believes some of the other shots were definitely fired by Sirhan, and we'll maybe get into issues of culpability and stuff like that as we go further. But that ends the story. And if you read his book when it comes out, and maybe Gary could go into this later on, he also unequivocally shows that the the nature of the sort of ricochet theories that get you into bullets somehow, eight bullets somehow causing all the wounds to the bystanders, he he also was able to meticulously, that was a great word, show that that's impossible that there had to have been more than eight shots fired. Uh, and he does it with evidence that people had never seen before. Uh, he could think in three dimensions like nobody I've ever uh, interacted with. And so, um, again, it's it, in my mind, and I mean, I think the physical evidence in other cases is pretty darn strong in this one. It's to me as close to 100% as you can get. The physical um, evidence in this case does not hold up the official version. Well, well and Chuck, I'd like to jump in just to please yeah. to comment on what, what Gary was saying. And, and the point is, it is true when you look at the entire body of evidence, which is what John did, when, when Gary said Noguchi lied. Well, the thing is, we all love Noguchi. Because Noguchi told the truth about the closeness of the pistol to the shot. He, he told that, and that, that was against a lot of push. In fact, he went further than that, and he's actually on record saying that the prosecution tried to suborn his testimony 
because an assistant DA approached him and asked him to change that statement right. and D- to despite the fact that he, he, yeah, despite the fact that he was their witness. Yeah. <laughs> just saying, so I, I just want to throw that in. Good. He did that, but what he did not do, I think, what Gary's alluding to is he because Noguchi had been present with Wolfer had seen a lot of the things in the pantry that Wolf were doing and, was a- and actually consulted with Wolfer. Noguchi didn't just serve as an autopsy doctor. So he was privy to a lot of information from the forensics work and tra- trajectory work that had been done, and he knew that. He also knew things about the x-rays that Stu just described. And so Noguchi did commit, he did lie, not necessarily proactively but through omission because he literally let Wolfer get away with a ton of misstatements including statements in court and I think that's where Gary Gary might go further with that yeah please do Gary if I might interject here I think one of the one of the expressions that John used that jumped out off the page at me was that John's in his mind Eyewitness testimony was not that being true. Where could he find the evidence? What did the evidence? Where did the evidence lead him to? And you have to understand that this is something in many areas where Noguchi and Wolfer worked together. It was the two of them that came up the pantry recreation photos. They're the ones that spent two different occasions in the pantry area reconstructing the crime. Once it was understood that JFK was not hit twice, but he was actually shot at four times, and now you have five bystanders who have also been wounded, you can now have shots to to account for. How do you account for that? Larry mentioned the ricochet shot. This is a ceiling tile shot that theoretically went through. JFK was shot twice near his armpit, near the axilla. One of the bullets uh, lodged uh, at the near his spine and was removed during the uh, autopsy surgery, rather. Right. The other one exited the front of his chest near the clavicle. Right. And then there was a third one that actually appears to have gone through the top of a suit jacket in the top right-hand corner that struck nothing. And, of course, the fatal one was fired, and it hit him at the mastoid process behind you're right here, that bony protuberance that sticks out. And he was shot there at extremely close range. And But even at that, Noguchi knew certain things, and yet... You know, he didn't he didn't put things in his autopsy report. I think Stu and Larry can can uh, back me up on this. He never the size of the wound of entrance. Now his his reasoning for this was that by the time he got the body, the wound of entrance had been obliterated, it had been stitched up, and so it it was uh, it hadn't been stitched up, but it was obliterated. It had uh, tissue had been removed, the bone, the underlying bone where the impact had, had been removed. But he had the these pieces. He could put it together. And he never, ever really mentioned the size of the wound. It was visible on x-ray uh, and, and his autopsy, too. John does excellent work on his autopsy, the way Noguchi conducted the autopsy, theoretically in reverse. Instead of starting at the top, he worked from the bottom up, so he claimed. But again, there's, there's many, many things in here that, you know, he is a, I'll use the expression, willing participant in this. Uh, he, he catches a real break during the Sirhan trial because under oath, um, he, his explanation of the chest wound was not checked against the pantry recreation photos. They were never asked to show those. Uh, okay, you know, so j- just just mute, mute up a second again, Gary, just just to get your sure. compression back. Sorry. Uh, <clears throat> it's, it's the hazards of doing this. <laughs> but um, it is curious to me that the, the bullet that went through the suit jacket 
And as you said, just trying to account for these different people being struck and the four shots, which were, you know, seemingly landing either on or around uh, Bobby Kennedy that didn't strike anybody. One of these bullets was never accounted for. It just went up according to trajectory and probably ended up in a ceiling tile, um, but was never recovered. So there's that. But even so, when you just add the the known people that were struck and the these places that can be accounted for immediately, they've already got nine, nine projectiles to account for. And in that case, unless Sirhan had the uh, opportunity to reload his weapon, which he did not. Which he did not. Then you can't say that that was the only weapon in play. Very simple. Um, as for this reconstruction element, you know, the layperson might say, well, of course, you know, they did surgery on him. They were trying to save his life. And <clears throat> maybe now you can't tell what happened. But even back then, forensic pathology would have allowed for reconstruction in order to recreate the circumstance. There, there, there were ways of doing this. Now, those techniques have changed. Uh, but even so, they were fairly useful at the time. And quite frankly, I I've had somebody else who is really familiar with bullet wounds uh, take a look at some of this and, and tell me that, you know, quite frankly, in their opinion, uh, if they were to try and identify a caliber of a bullet which struck Bobby Kennedy in the back of his head, um, they would go with thirty-eight, not twenty-two. Now, that's what I've been told by somebody who wouldn't go on the record by the way, but uh, I, I know that they're very knowledgeable about this and they had looked at certain things that I can't possibly interpret because even though I have studied this some and had to study, you know, forensic pathology a bit. Yeah, go ahead. Stu touched upon this in, in his, uh, his, his last narrative. This is what John proves in his manuscript. Uh, John proves that the size of the entrance hole could not have been generated by a 22 caliber bullet. And uh, again, he approached uh, people who were ballistics experts, and as to indicated, he didn't reveal to them who he was talking about. And it, as you say, they indicated it was a, a higher caliber, perhaps a 32, perhaps a 36, perhaps a 38, but it definitely wasn't a 22 caliber uh, projectile that, that generated this type of wound. Yeah, see, that was the general point made to me by this individual who, again, was very familiar with what the characteristics of bullet wounds were. And the idea was that it is that big of, and that now layperson again, not familiar with guns, not familiar with ammunition might say, well, it's a difference, large difference between what looks like a 38 wound and what looks like a 22 wound. A 22 is very small. You know, again, this is a revolver. I, I, look, I personally possess a, a very typical, very common 38, right? It's a five-shot 38 because that's what the cylinder accommodates easily. So here's the thing. The gun size on the Iver Johnson, not much different than my 38, but because of the size of the, of, of the projectile in the chamber, the chamber can be made to accommodate more projectiles. Okay, I know that that sounds strange. I've got a five-shot 38. Well, same size, almost, or slightly larger is your eight-shot Ivor Johnson because these are smaller projectiles. They're smaller missiles, period. 
So, <laughs> obviously, they make a different hole when you shoot them through something. I, I don't right. mean to discount that it's through a human being. I'm just saying that doesn't matter. If you shot it through a piece of wood, you're going to get a different kind of hole from a 22 than you do from a 38. It's just right. that simple. <laughs> um, I, I know I'm, I, I'm belaboring this a bit, but I just want to make it very clear in case anybody's saying, well, what does that mean? Is that really a big difference? It's a small caliber weapon. No, there's a big difference. <laughs> um, right. and, and you mentioned the fact that so they have nine shots to account for with an eight shot, theoretically an eight shot revolver uh, taken from the, uh, the assassin. Well, the way Wolfer and Noguchi worked around that, Wolfer started it, was with the ricochet shot. One of, they indicated that two, two of the shots went through the same ceiling tile. One of them hit into the concrete and was never found. Right. The other one, it was it said, struck and ricocheted back, back down through a different ceiling tile, struck the floor, and then a woman further back in the hallway. The problem with that, and as John shows with photographs that no one has actually seen before or studied, is that yeah, there's a very good chance that this bullet uh, struck not only the, the the concrete ceiling above, but it may have struck one of the metal supports that hold the drop ceiling together. And if that's the case, you know, then what of the ricochet? The other thing too, when John compared uh, a, a recreation film that was taken with the actual uh, victims that were there and uh, looked at Wolfer's diagram of the recreation of the shooting, they were they were positioned all wrong, and in essence. Wolfer had to line them almost up in a straight line so that certain things could happen, that it could have happened with that gun. And as John shows in his re in his recreation, again, starting with Wolfer's diagram, starting with the LAPD's model of the pantry area, he proves that the people weren't where Wolfer and Noguchi, and Wolfer in particular, claims that they were. In fact, at one point, JFK would have had to have been seven or eight feet further east for it to have happened uh, the way that Wolfer describes it. Mm. And, and it's difficult. To, this is difficult to describe. Okay. You got to understand. Yes. Since you haven't seen it, Jack, the point. Stu and and Gary and I have seen it. We're talking about an analysis that John did with something on the order of 450 photos and graphs and images. It, it's it's overwhelming, but you could never get to that level of detail. He actually he laid out positions of everything against the grid pattern of the tile on the floor mm -hmm. and demonstrated that that's the way he and measured it and you know to show that Wolfer was putting people in the wrong places the bottom line is Wolfer was putting people in places to support a shooting trajectory scenario to account for those bullets and he was forcing the whole thing uh, he he literally had to move people around to make it work. Not, not just one person, but many person, many people. And, and John can illustrate that, and he shows them side by side. It's kind of like, here's where Wolfer put them in his diagram. Oh, darn, here's a picture that shows where they really were, and they're in a different location. Right. And, 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 and the sad thing about that is Noguchi was there during most of all of that. Noguchi was there and observed entry wounds, bullet holes going into the door frame, and actually there are photographs of him pointing to those in pictures taken in real time in the pantry, and that yet he never brings that up again. So that that's this all gets to the point of this the whole thing is an artifice and it all holds together unless you actually can check it against 
real measurements and real photos. The fascinating thing is that the photos continued to exist and and literally Wolfer and Noguchi got away in the trial with describing things that were never illustrated against, against reality. See, I once saw a black and white film which had no sound uh, where there were very few people positioned and it appeared to me as though, I don't know if John touched on this or saw this film, but probably he did. Um, you know, they had Bobby Kennedy in the wrong spot at the time of the shooting. Um, at certain points of this film where they were trying to, and, and they didn't have enough people in the in the thing. I mean, th- this is very basic. There were a lot of people clogging this very narrow corridor. This changes what happened. Very simple, <laughs> okay? Because, look, if you have a, a, a... Just imagine in your living room, you go from, well, listen, we're going to recreate a circumstance where there was 30 people in my living room. Um, and now I'm going to bring five people in and put them in the position where, you know, yeah, they supposedly were at the time. Um, you, you, you're missing 25 people. What are you going to do? You know, it's it's not the same circumstance. It's not going to play out the same way. And it's just complete dishonesty. And, and of course, again, television shows have animated this and recreated this and done it all sorts of different ways. And, and John did this, you know, no TV show uh, where he lays this out and figures out, well, look, here, here here's an actual photograph of the circumstance. And, and by the way, not all of that still exists, not all of it anyway, because you can't see some of these things anymore. I've taken note of that recently, that uh, there, there is way less um, arguments against special unit senator on YouTube nowadays, <laughs> okay? Um, and, and it's very, very strange to watch how, you know, let's just scrub away the real artifacts here. So this way you're left with the story that we tell you, which is effectively the, the impression I get here. Um, but look, I'm going to put my concerns aside because as we come toward the end of this first hour, I think it's important to uh, to get beyond this as well because I know John had to have examined eyewitness accounts, had to have examined the methodology by which, and, and look, I haven't seen the manuscript, um, but I also know that, uh, you know, Larry and Stu did some work here too, so I don't want to just stay on John's work. But I want to get into what it is that Larry and Stu discovered going through this. And as Stu said, you know, as uh, as John Hunt was doing this work, he was in contact with Stu and everything and vice versa. So, you know, that's always helpful when you've got somebody else who is very seriously tracking down some in- intensely, uh, well, diverse facts <laughs> And you're doing the same thing. It's kind of helpful, uh, especially when it's somebody who does, you know, ethical and ethical work, which uh, which John Hunt did. And again, no disrespect to Gary Murr, but really wish that we could hear from John. But unfortunately, uh, you know, fate has not allowed that because John's no longer with us. Um, but I'm very much looking forward to seeing if this gets published. But I do want to get into what it is that Larry and Stu have published um, even though it's not quite a book, it is out there. It's on the uh, Mary Farrell Foundation uh, website. And like I said, I'll give you guys a link to that in the show notes. But 
what is it that we need to carry forward from here? Well, John clearly laid out a quest to go through the evidence and to find a way through it to make sense of it. Um, But if you're only dealing with the official evidence, is that even possible is a question I have. And I want to kind of ask Stu that uh, as we as we run out of time, like I said, on this first hour. But we have another hour to work with. So believe me, we're going to get into more details. But Stu, just looking at the official evidence, is it even possible to weave together a reasonable case for, well, just what happened? Not not necessarily guilt of Sir Anseron or not, because again, uh, you know, I'm not one of these guys who thinks he was totally innocent. But um, it, 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 is there a way to even weave together a a good story once you look at the evidence that they gathered and how they put it together to even give us a, a good shot at figuring out what really occurred here? I think in terms of a shooting scenario, John Hunt in his book gets you about as close as you can get to where things might have happened. In terms of tracing it to another person, I think that's a tricky matter. Uh, it's it, That's one of the sort of stranger elements because whoever was involved, and it's not unknown in the history of crime that's, you know, in fact, the assassination of the candidate for Mexico in 1994 for the Mexican presidency bears a lot of similarities in the case of where it's pretty obvious he was shot from more than one direction. It's pretty obvious to me that the person who they caught was somebody who was shooting, but it's also pretty obvious in the in the chaos somebody got away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the chaos – creates a problem however and i if we get to this i think i hope in the next hour um where you can go because as uh gary said uh john debunks thoroughly the idea things like sirhan sirhan was firing blanks um that gun was involved in shooting at bobby kennedy and so a very important question one that larry looked into one that john has talked to me about uh, independently of each other and that gets ignored and we'll talk about in the next hour is who purchased the gun uh-huh. uh, I'll just I'll just leave the, the listeners hanging it ain't Sirhan Sirhan no so, but, but even so I have a <laughs> even I have a suspect in mind there Stu just saying uh, uh, well it's, it's not even a suspect <laughs> we know purchase the gun okay i was being generous but yeah and and that's why we can we can get into Uh some of the some of what larry did which uh amazing work i helped him some but he did most of the legwork in terms of okay so who was sirhan sirhan hanging around with and that also leads to a question that you do have to address ultimately which is and again we'll get into the next hour i'm sure if you, and I think we're all united here, if you have serious problems, and I think it's to the point of ludicrous, if you have serious problems with the uh, Sirhan was brainwashed theory, and you listen to the stuff that Larry was working on, and you ask who fired, who, who purchased the gun that Sirhan fired, you get a logical 
answer to a question that you have to ask, which is, if Sirhan Sirhan didn't fire the shot into the head, why would Sirhan Sirhan, if he wasn't also a Manchurian, and we'll get into that a little bit, why would he cover for whoever did at his own and take all the blame for a murder himself mm-hmm. that he may have been able to get out of with a lesser charges had he simply come clean about who else was helping him? And so you start adding all these things together, it does at least the the sort of what happened in who was helping Sirhan in the immediate crime, I think is something that emerges as a logical conclusion. Where that goes, as Larry said, is, is difficult to take beyond. But I said a lot there, I'll, I'll, I guess we'll take a break and maybe I'll leave the uh, listeners hanging there to fill in some of those gaps. No, absolutely true. That's what we'll do. Uh, And fact is, this is a really important show and a rarely discussed topic in my mind because the RFK assassination is uh, extremely pivotal to the time period one way or another. Some people would say it absolutely altered America, even more so than his own brother's murder, uh, which happened about five years, just short of five years previous. But... Anyway, we're going to continue this discussion. It is part of the Larry Hancock collection, that's for sure. Larry Hancock is with me, Stu Wexler is with me, and the great Gary Murr is also along for the ride. And hopefully you will stick around, too, as the Ocelli Effect continues after this. Do you like history, real history, that you were never taught in schools? Why? The Vietnam War, nuclear bombs, and nation building in Southeast Asia. By author Mike Swanson, with new documentation never seen before. That'll open your eyes to events that led up to this. Why? The Vietnam War, nuclear bombs, and nation building in Southeast Asia, 1945 through 1961. Get your copy today at Amazon.com. Why? The Vietnam War. By author Mike Swanson. Gold. Silver. The stock market. WallStreetWindow.com. Perhaps you're invested deeply. Perhaps you're not in deep enough. Maybe you're thinking about getting started. WallStreetWindow.com. Michael Swanson, the brilliant author of The War State, understood these trends professionally for many years, and now he gives you the benefit of his knowledge. WallStreetWindow.com. Go there now. Go there now. Go there now. In Denial. Secret Wars with Airstrikes and Tanks by Larry Hancock. Secret Wars became a staple of U.S. covert operations and are still happening today. Larry Hancock's book, In Denial, rips the cover off many of them. Using new files, it exposes things about the Bay of Pigs that no one has ever written about before. It shows why it really failed and why the United States did not learn from it. Secret Wars became a staple of U.S. covert operations and are still happening today. It also shows why other countries today are doing secret operations with more success. This is the book that puts what some want to deny into the light. In Denial, Secret Wars with Airstrikes and Tanks. Larry Hancock. 
For more information, go to Larry-Hancock.com. Pick up your copy of In Denial at Amazon.com in digital or physical form. Go ahead, caller. Hey, I'm interested in the truth about the JFA assassination. Right. Well, what do you want to know? Judy Baker's wild claim, Oswald girlfriend, he knew Ruby and Barry, cancer weapons. Really? I imagine I could claim I have four wheels. It doesn't make me a wagon, but okay. Oswald was on the kill team and trying to prevent the murder of John Kennedy. Come on now. Has a real Eckert on the JFA assassination book into her claim? Go to Amazon.com. Enter Judith Baker in her own words. You'll get results for a digital copy of a book where Walt Brown utilizes her own words and the known evidence in the case to get at, well, <laughs> a different perspective, let's say. You can get Judith Barry Baker in her own words from the author himself, signed if you request it, by contacting Dr. Brown at K-I-A-S-J-F-K at AOL.com. It's a fun book and it actually dissects the many, many fantastic claims. Judith Barry Baker in her own words. Thank you for all the great information. Now is a very good time to make a contribution at Ocelli.com by hitting the uh, donate button in the upper right-hand corner of the website if you're on PC. Or, you know what, you can find that link somewhere and maybe even uh, hit up the Patreon, whatever. Uh, all of it counts, and believe it or not, uh, it is sometimes a struggle. Ocelli.com Learn from our Second hour of the Ocelli Effect begins now at Ocelli.com. But, of course, you could be somewhere else, sometime else, and on something else listening to us. So this is a, a great piece of the Larry Hancock collection. Now, a standardized book. This is kind of a supplement because we are in the political assassination section of Larry Hancock's complete works. But, you know, an actual book, as far as I know, didn't occur when it came to the RFK assassination. Um, and really wish it had, although I'm going to give you guys a link to where you can see the uh, the written work between Stu and Larry over on the Mary Farrell Foundation uh, website. And we also have Gary Murr with us, who is a meticulous researcher in his own right, has a very long history with the JFK case, but also, as we discussed in the first hour, has uh, certainly encountered the evidence and the great work of a now-passed-on researcher, John Hunt. So, all of this has to do with Bobby Kennedy's assassination at the Ambassador Hotel. And, you know, again, if memory serves me, I don't have it in front of me, but just off the top of my head, I think it was June 6, 1968. I have watched the television footage many, many times from that night. I've watched a lot of other footage from that night. We've had Jamie Scott Enyard on the show. We've had other people on the show about this. But it is more of a rare topic. And uh, Larry and Stu, as per usual, don't necessarily fall into the regular conspiracy stew. <laughs> stew, falling into the stew. Kind of funny. Sorry, Stu. Um, but, you know, it, it's it's very typical and very necessary to discuss, oh, I don't know the facts, the evidence. These things help when you're trying to navigate your way through things that those that are the powers that be did not seem to seem fit to really, truly investigate objectively. And I think it's an even clearer case of, well, here we go, special unit senator 
what happened with the investigation? How did the, oh, the LAPD, I mean, they're always reliable and honest brokers of information, aren't they? Any, any, anybody detect that sarcasm? Anyway, thing is, there's a lot to this. And uh, again, it's very hard to compress it into two hours, but we're going to do our best to finish it out in this next hour and uh, and see what we can do. And I'm going to try to get out of the way here because we've discussed a lot of the official story. What's wrong? There's plenty of holes. We didn't even really discuss any witness testimony because you almost don't need it except to uh, try and disprove certain things. And of course, there is a history here where people were interviewed in some very interesting ways, listening to tapes of certain people being interviewed, I got to tell you, are a bit disturbing. Matter of fact, listening to the switchboard operator's discussion from that night, trying to call the police into the situation, is pretty disturbing considering what happened. There's a lot of disturbing here. There's a lot of what in the hell were the powers that be doing? What were the law enforcement people doing? What happened to all the bullets? And by the way, we only talked about nine shots. I've heard many other descriptions of many other things. And got to tell you, one thing that's universal here is a lot of bullets flying around in a very small space. Not all of them accounted for. Not all of them desired to be accounted for. And yet, this is not even the full story of what went wrong with the examination in the aftermath of a man's murder. Regardless of who it was, it's a mess. Anyways, we did that in the first hour. Larry Hancock, though, I think is going to now take us into territory, which is even more uncommon. Because, again, the way Stu and Larry do stuff, and Gary Murr, uh, obviously, is going to continue to be with us and hopefully chime in, too, and help us out through this Um the, the major focus is on Larry's work, that's for sure. But again, um, a real privilege to also have, I mean, you know, three people that any of them I could do a series with about various things. And by the way, I proposed a few things to Gary Murr, so hopefully we'll be hearing from Gary again in the future. I know I'm going to try and bother Stu to come on a lot more. Matter of fact, I might have a regular spot in mind for Stu if, if, uh, if I get a chance to talk to him about it. But anyway, all that aside, let's get back to the RFK assassination. Larry-Hancock.com is the place to go to check out Larry's work, don't forget. And uh, that, along with Stu's connection, uh, where you can reach out to him, will be available. And maybe before we're done, we'll even give you Gary Murr's email address. If you want to reach out to any of the people talking on this show, maybe you have information or something you'd like to add or questions to ask and... All these people are available. Stu is available on Twitter, and uh, I'll give you the link directly to that so you can click on it, and you don't even have to remember his Twitter handle. But go follow him and check him out. And Larry-Hancock.com is the website to go to for Larry's books, his blog, everything. Okay, all that done now, Larry. I hand it over to you, my friend, because where do we go from here? Well, I, I think there's a. I think there's a good segue. I mean, what we... What John does, what Gary talked about, what you can you can pretty well establish as fact now is that that Sirhan Sirhan, as the killer of Robert Kennedy, was an artifice. It was something that wasn't there in the actual evidence. It wasn't there in the crim, 
criminal criminology work. It wasn't there in the forensics or the ballistics. It, they had to force that to fit. And unfortunately, both Wolfer and Noguchi knew that, and they knew it was forced. And, and so John Hunt's manuscript and, and book will demonstrate that to one and all. There's just no question about it. So where does that leave you? That leaves you with more than one shooters. That leaves you with a, a conspiracy of some sort. should not be just a coincidence. So I guess the path we look now is look at the cons- conspiracy, which John did not do. John's fact-oriented. He gave us the truth about the shooting. He did not pursue a conspiracy per se. That's what I did in Incomplete Justice, which you just referred to, Chuck. So there, there are really two elements of that. One one big element is that, once again, Sir Han in court was positioned and pictured by the prosecution essentially as a lone nut. Uh, that's just, we've got him. We got him with a gun as in hand. We need to win this case. It's easy enough. We'll, we'll just make sure that nothing goes into evidence or no more than is necessary go into evidence to divert the jury. Okay, that's the point is, and the real problem of this is that LAPD and SUS had known from the beginning. They had dozens of witnesses. They had they had a whole pattern of interaction of people with Sirhan for literally weeks before and hours before the shooting that very clearly laid out the fact that he had been in contact with other people that had been observed. As Stu said, he hadn't even purchased the gun for himself. He had been with other people when he purchased the ammunition that was used. That was all there. So unfortunately, in the end, just as Wolfer Noguchi had to obfuscate to make him the murderer in court, Sus ended up obfuscating the entire results of their investigation to essentially leave all that out. Okay, so what is all that? Now, for all the record, is- for the record, though, Larry, uh, Sus is special unit senator, and this was the LAPD's supposedly special unit, which would be devoted to uh, investigating the circumstances of this case, right? And it 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 has a curious history as to the way it was put together. You can look at some of the characters; they're pretty interesting. Uh, as to who was selected to be part of this, and indeed uh, the the head of that investigation, I think he was the head of the investigation, released a book called Special Unit Senator at one point, didn't he? He did, and he talks about conspiracy quite a bit in his book. (laughs) Yes, he did. Okay, no, just wanted to note that for the listeners in case they're wondering what sus was when you said it. Sorry. Uh, Go ahead. Um, So what I I did in the essays, which... uh, when I did the essays, we didn't have John's work. I didn't have his manuscript. But what I did is I, I tackled those two things. You know, how did the LAPD investigate it? What, what did they find and what did they do with it? Because those are two different things. Uh, mm-hmm. And what they did with it was pretty dem- dramatic. Uh, perhaps the most dramatic, just to give an illustration, is there was an LAPD police sergeant named Shiraga who actually interviewed a couple that were leaving. He he came into the Ambassador parking lot just after the shooting. He interviewed a couple named the Bernsteins 
who described to him meeting three people that were running out of the hotel, gleefully exclaiming that they had managed to kill Robert Kennedy. Um, Chiraga reported that. Uh, but you would never know that from the official story, because what you will find in the special unit files is a lengthy interview with, Chica with Chiraga where he admits that he probably misunderstood what the people were saying. Um, the whole incident wasn't nearly as important as, as you might think it was. And essentially that report makes it go away. The problem with is that Chiraga was still alive and was able to challenge that. And you got to love this. You, you mentioned, Chuck, that the LAPD does not have a horrendously good reputation. Well, Chiraga, as one of their own officers, was concerned at the time that something might happen to his report because it was so explosive. Mm. He kept the original cop original of the report. He handed a copy through a closed door to his friend within the SUS unit. And later, what he found out is that SUS had come down and picked up all of the office copies that he'd filed. They disappeared forever. What you find in the files is this interview, which he says never happened. He was never interviewed by the SUS team, and he could prove it by providing his own initial report, which is at almost 180-degree odds with what they claim in the official file. So that's just an illustration of how bad it got. And, and I think you can see uh, Chiraga defy this, uh, you know, th this interview, basically, and and tell you that, you know, my report disappeared and all this stuff. I, I think there's film of it, and I'm pretty sure it was contained in the uh, the second gun uh, documentary, right? Uh, yeah. Which is a very early documentary. Uh, you know, look, it's got its problems or whatever, but I'm just saying that from his own mouth. You, you can hear this man say, look, you know, and, and first of all, if you know, if you're suspecting that maybe stuff might disappear on you, that suggests to me that it's probably happened before. Okay. It's not something you just imagined that it's in air. So just saying, just saying for context, right, Larry? Uh, you, you, you got to add that in. And, and so to, to kind of wrap that up, because it's a long story and it is detailed in the essays. There's one other example just to give people that may not have dug into this before a quality feel, and that is that one of the primary witnesses in all of this, and there was a whole series, and that's what I want to get into next, um, uh, of that evening were people that reported, multiple people that reported seeing a polka dot dress girl in conjunction with two other young men contacting and in touch with Sirhan at multiple places within the hotel, which Sirhan now himself admits. Not only does he admit it, he admit it now. He implies that she was a major figure in the story, although he won't say anything more about it. Okay. Now, a key witness to this was a young lady named Sandra Serrano. Um, she told the police about she described meeting the three people that Shiraga heard about in the parking lot. She described that separately, independently, totally independently from Shiraga. 
the two people never talked to each other, two totally different sources. And she went on record as having heard them say the same thing that they had said to the Bernsteins. Okay, fine. That Chirago had heard. Now, LAPD managed to write off her story essentially by forcing her. Well, they didn't force her. Basically, they eventually had so much trouble. They could not find this girl that so many people had seen, some 26 witnesses, that they actually ended up by taking Serrano out to dinner in the evening, buying her a couple of drinks. She was underage, by the way. Then doing a polygraph exam on her, which violates every principle of doing polygraph exams. I cover this in the essays. And getting her under pressure. And there's a tape of this. Like you said, Jeff, there's also a tape of this. And nobody, you can listen to that tape now of the polygraph interview, and it's just revolting. They say, they tell her that she will, she loved RFK, she admired him, and the whole family will suffer unless she recants her story. Right. And ultimately, they force her to recant her story, and based on that, they go back and mark every single file on observance of the polka dot dress girl as not valid. Not that the people that made the report, just after she does that on tape, they go and and wipe out a whole series of investigative reports relating to the polka dot dress girl. Right. After now, a long period of browbeating her, basically, to say, you don't want to say this, you know, you're going to upset, uh, I'm sure they'll write a letter to thank you even at one point. She was told, you know, for, for you recanting this and everything else, yeah, just tell everybody you were confused, pretty much, is what she's led to saying. And, oh, yeah, I must have gotten confused. I must have gotten upset uh, just setting aside her entire account of that part of the incident, right? And here's the big sin that they knew about, by the way, but nobody caught them. They, they say, basically, that she only came up with a story because she got it from a busboy who was working in the pantry. And they were talking while they were in a holding area, and she got the story from him that he had seen a girl in the pantry, etc. What gives lie to this whole thing, and what would have actually, if it had been brought up in court, uh, would have had a terrific impact on the prosecution, is that Serrano had actually talked to a a deputy L.A. district attorney out in the parking lot outside the hotel before she ever went back in, before she ever was in a holding area, and told her story to the deputy D.A., who reported, who wrote three written reports to LAPD and SUS saying that he could verify her story and that it had been independently made before she had ever talked to anyone else. That's in the file. So the interesting thing is, if you turn around and think that, the L.A. polygraph expert got her to stay, say that she had heard the story from, from the busboy, and he certified that statement as being truthful on the polygraph. However, we know it was not truthful. Well, right. So that would have gotten every single polygraph interview, every piece of work that he had done for us, thrown out of court. 
Well, and here's the other issue, too, is, you know, this this idea that she got it from the busboy, it seemed to me as though, according to my memory, and you guys could correct me, but there were all sorts of attempts to say you got this story from here, there, or otherwise, some of them saying that you got the story from the media. Now, if you look at the contemporaneous media accounts, it is very easy to confuse things in a wild way because, I mean, at one point, I, I kid you not, you can find footage of this, that, uh, you know, people said that he screamed out that he had done this for his country and uh, that he was Mexican. I- I'm not kidding, by the way, that, that, that this is exactly what the media was reporting at the time. Um, now, if somebody had come up with that, and I don't even still know where that report came from. And as I stated, there were uh, witness accounts, you know, moments afterwards where somebody said a, a security guard returned fire. Um, and that I, I, I have not seen sufficiently proven because uh, that person's account was that uh, Sir Han had maybe been shot in the leg. Now, <laughs> th- this gets into a whole weird area where a lot of stuff could have been misled, uh, you know, misleading in the media let's just say, and maybe other people talking around the circumstances as it happened could have led to all sorts of witness contamination. But it was irrelevant because no matter what, they just were looking to discredit accounts which were given to them. I think this is a consistent theme. Maybe Stu can correct me on this. Am I wrong? Well, in terms of your the theme that they try and discredit witnesses and confuse things, I mean, that they basically use a polygrapher to not just with the polka dot address girl, basically as a, instead of you know lie detection to basically browbeat people into lying. Yeah. Um, so uh, again, I mean the, the the performance of the LAPD and as Larry said, if you ever want to dig into corruption in a police force, and I don't want to paint a broad brush, but the LAPD is, is is right there with anybody you wanna you wanna engage with. The New Orleans PD, they're in a night. Chicago PD, they they're in like a, a a race for who can be the consistently most corrupt police force. From in the case of LAPD, this to the Rampart situation to the investigation of the deaths of Biggie and Tupac, it's it's crazy. Yeah. Um, but I do want to touch on something else you said, Chuck, which is, you know, media and eyewitness testimony in the heat of the moment is subject when it's sudden and violent, not always, to being incorrect, somewhat imprecise. Media accounts can can at times, you know, uh, sort of color and influence people, not even maliciously, to say things that are not necessarily uh, legitimate. So it's you know it's tricky. But the the thing I want to get back to some of where Larry was going, and I think it's really important. Those other instances where people report something strange involving Sirhan before there's a shooting. Days before the the evening of, those don't have the same problem associated with them. And what Larry does very well is show a consistency. So n- no, you don't see a woman in a polka dotted dress every single time. But, and I have to say this carefully, lest 
I get accused of being a perv. Um, a top-heavy woman is seen consistently with the broad similarities to the polka dotted dress girl. Not just around in and around Sirhan at the ambassador before the shooting, but in the days and weeks leading up to the shooting. At the times when ammunition or rifle firing, rifle range firing stuff is going on, shooting range. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other people there also are fairly consistent over time. And it so happens, and we'll maybe get to it uh, as we proceed further, um, it so happens that they also tend to fit, in many cases, the description of different brothers of Sirhan. And I think that gets you to the other element, which is if you don't think Sirhan is a Manchurian candidate, and we can talk about that, I hope we do, it's – uh, I think the case is, is bogus on multiple levels. Right. And you believe, and maybe Gary can explain some of the issues with these claims that the gun wasn't the real gun and that it was firing blanks and that, you know, there was, you know, like, uh, you know, dust or not even dust, but like powderly type thing in the air that people say shows it was blanks. John Hunt completely debunks that. Maybe Gary can discuss that. Um, with you folks, once you concede that, that Sirhan's hanging around people under suspicious circumstances, that he did actively fire the weapon, and that he therefore, the amnesia argument doesn't work, the brain, the Manchurian candidate argument doesn't work, that means Sirhan knows who those people are. And so the question has to become, in addition to why did the LAPD operate the way they did, why has Sirhan then, for decades since, why has he been willing to take the full brunt of the crime when he didn't do the fatal shooting? I mean, he still did criminal activity. Why has he been willing to just rot away in San Quentin when he, in theory, should know? All of the stuff that Ga- that Larry wrote about in his monographs on Mary Farrell. He should be able to tell us who the polka dot address woman is and how we got to know her. Who were these other people who were with him? And one more time, and I'm sure we'll eventually get there, he should be able to tell us why – what is the circumstance of how you got a hold of that gun? Because if it was involved in the shooting – Whoever got it is a serious candidate as a conspirator. Okay. Um, So with that, I want to throw something on the table, and I don't care which one of you wants to pick it up because it's a question that I never hear asked. Knowing some of the history pre-assassination of Sirhan, why has nobody actually examined the idea that maybe the inconsistencies in his behavior and memory and everything else have something to do with a head injury because there are accounts that say that uh, he had sustained a pretty significant head injury at, at, at a point before this night, before these occurrences even. And I wonder about that, especially because with all of the craziness to defend him that I've heard, the Manchurian candidate thing, hypnosis, 
you know, uh, MK Ultra program to kill, all the headline stuff that a lot of people love to throw out there, um, <clears throat> which doesn't work on multiple levels. I often wonder why it is the inconsistencies in his story, his behavior, uh, and all of this are not somehow tied to possibly the results of a head injury. Because um, that would make a lot of sense out of a bunch of things that currently don't make sense in my mind. Maybe I'm wrong about this, and I am curious if uh, maybe John tried to track this down, or Larry looked at it, or Stu looked at it. I'm curious if anybody's uh, I, really looked at this. Go ahead. I did look at it, Chuck, and I think the sad point is there's a person who probably knew the answer to that question, and that person is the individual who was probably more closely personally associated with Sirhan over a period of some three years uh, before he went to work at the horse farms down in the valley. Uh, he a fellow named Rathke, Tom Rathke, who met him when Sirhan was visiting various racetracks, uh, became familiar with him, stayed friends with him. Uh, he stayed friends with him, and essentially he he became his mentor in terms of psychic abilities. Uh, we should know a lot more about Rathke than we do. What we do know, he did believe in psychic powers. He did believe in, in the Rosicrucians' visualization ta uh, tactics. He did believe in self-visualization through hypnosis and the fact that you could make things happen if you visualize them and, and put yourself in something of a trance. Mm. He knew all of that, um, and he actually mentored Sir Han in those techniques. Right Now, the interesting thing is that he... What we, do, what we know now, because of the work of Lynn Magnan, who was uh, an aide to uh, one of uh, Sir Ann's first attorneys and who was a brilliant researcher herself, um, we know that he actually – he was peripherally interviewed by the FBI in one of the most superficial interviews that you'll ever see okay. and an equally superficial view uh, interview by LAPD. And he, he didn't say anything. I mean, he stonewalled them. But now we know that, that he was actually in touch with Sirhan all the way through 67 into 68 through the period of his injury that you just described. He stayed in touch with him. He stayed in touch with what Sirhan was doing with his self-hypnosis and visualization. And actually, he must have had some sense that something had really gone bad, whether it was from the head injury or wherever he was going, because he actually wrote a note, which was concealed by the police from the family, well, which was concealed, which Lynn found. Mm -hmm. And the note was essentially a warning to Sir Han that says, if you keep up what you're doing, something terrible is going to happen. Mm -hmm. So I guess my only observation would be Rathke, who was never questioned, might be the one person that would could tell us if that concussion is what really drove Sirhan like over the edge from something that was essentially transcendental and and hippie like to something that actually became dangerous and vicious. Right. 
Okay, no, fair enough. I just felt as though it should be addressed because, again, it's something that, as you said, look, there, the total information that could be helpful here is not available, is it? So just saying it's one of those things. Um, but anyway, back to it. I, I want to go from where uh, Stu had, had gone before because uh, I want to get around to everything that we can here. And the thing is, well... You know, the family at first, again, initial media reports, right? <laughs> um, you heard about one brother that still lived in the same home with Sirhan, and uh, you heard about another one that, uh, you know, the police questioned immediately. But um <clears throat> appears as though there might have been a reason to talk to another family member that uh, would have made sense if you were doing an honest, open, and full investigation of the circumstances leading up to the night at the Ambassador Hotel. And uh, I wonder, you know, should should I give that to Larry, to Stu, or to Gary? I'm not sure. Uh, where, which, which one of you should speak to this, Larry? I, I think Stu should speak to it. He he remembers names better than I do, but I, <laughs> let me give him an introduction. The point is, sure. one particular document out of the LAPD files is absolutely mind-blowing. When they were getting all of these reports, as Stu said, of people seeing someone in, in one case, an instance where people crashed a a luncheon party for RFK and, and may very well have been intending to attack him there. Multiple witnesses described this girl that Stu did with somebody that looked like Sirhan. But in many of these instances, when shown photographs, they would identify either Sirhan or a brother and say they weren't sure. Now, what the, the document in the file says is LAPD gently approached the brothers and asked them if they would be willing to participate in lineups so that these witnesses could be tested. And the brothers responded that that would make them uncomfortable, and LAPD dropped it. <laughs> Can you even believe that? So, so and, and that's significant because the brothers were broadly similar looking enough, although, you know, heights were, were somewhat different. One was sort of tall and thin. The others were, you know, similar to Sirhan and short. Um, it more than once people could uh, certainly in a if you're not concentrating, confuse the two together. And again, as Larry demonstrates with his writing, you see, and just before, and what he was talking about is people who could be his brothers are in this cadre of people who keep on being seen with Sirhan. And a woman that consistently, at least broadly, fits the description of the polka dot address lady. And even up to and including the day of the murder and the ambassador, there is some suggestion there that it wasn't just Sirhan. It was possibly one or two of the, of his brothers and this woman. And they're showing up in RFK-related places or doing suspicious things. And the key thing is that one of them, Munir, purchased the gun. Uh -huh. And so, I mean, they did do, and Larry could speak maybe a little bit more to it, they did do a superficial investigation, emphasis superficial, and to, like, you know, trying to pursue that angle a little bit more. 
But at the end of the day, that really wasn't pressed. And so what you have, just to, to sort of bring folks back, you have a very clear multiple gun scenario, at least, in the shooting of RFK. You have people on the night of hanging around Sirhan. Those people broadly, at least, sometimes pretty closely fit the description of a, you said before, a cadre of people who keep on being seen with Sirhan near RFK, doing suspicious things in the days leading up to the assassination. One of them, more than one of them, looked like brothers of Sirhan, and one of them purchased the gun. And again, that gun was not firing blanks. And again, and I, I, the only pushback I would have about the head injury thing is you could go look up, for instance, a video. I strongly encourage people to do it. Go look up the 1989 interview with David Frost and Sirhan Sirhan for Inside Edition. Okay. It's very difficult to watch that interview and come away thinking – that Sirhan doesn't have a very clear memory, if not of the details of the crime, of his motivations in trying to go after and his participation in the murder of RFK. And it sure as heck sounds sincere. Um, and so, like, coming back to it, the fact that we're not, that we don't at least have or have not had something like a grand jury. Because these folks are still, some of them are still alive. I mean, certainly Sirhan is. Right. Still in um, prison, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I, and my argument would be I am not in favor of just rolling out the carpet and giving him parole. He has been in for an extended amount of time for what your typical attempted murder would be um, and, and, you know, violent assault. But what I would do is I would try and get him – I would use the possibility of him letting him out on that justification that you know you didn't do the actual fatal headshot. You served your time for the other elements of the crime if you're willing to tell us more of what you know and then confront him with the evidence that we have. And I know it's a long shot. What worries me is is that people get so caught up in what I think is an obviously debunkable proposition that he was completely brainwashed that and, – and not to go too far afield that I think showed up in the James Earl Ray case as well yep. – that you feed into the notion of the person involved that they can get out scot-free with no consequences and they then feed into your – your narrative, which is not the actual narrative. We have a real chance, right. I think, again, it may be a long shot, of getting some final answers, possibly with another investigation, possibly with a promise to Sirhan of some kind of, you know, commutation. If we just pursue what is, I think, a very strong circumstantial case, at least, that the family had something to do with it. And maybe they can tell us something more. I mean, I could go for, especially if you listen to that David Frost interview, right. I could accept the notion that it was a very uh, violent reaction to 
RFK's position on the Israeli-Palestinian situation. But there is also, and Larry was hinting at this at the very beginning, there's indications that it could possibly go into other directions of people who may be manipulating that to get what they wanted. Um, I know I diverted that a lot, but that would be my my big picture takeaway. Well, see, that's the thing, and I want to ask Gary this uh, really quickly. And Look, we we can take this a few minutes over because we started a few minutes late, and uh, honestly, your tolerance is uh, is it's up to you guys. But, um, <clears throat> you know, the the typical question in a crime, Gary, is uh, let's see if we can develop means, motive, and opportunity, and we can create a narrative which explains these three things. Now, when it comes to means, we have the well, the brother buying a gun, um, <clears throat> the gun. That is allegedly used. Now, there's means not being fully explored by the official investigation. Opportunity. A whole lot of that seemed to have been ignored because if you're not tracking down and taking for, you know, uh, in a serious way, the eyewitness accounts of his movements on that night, then you're not seriously exploring opportunity. Motive. Motive is still in question in my mind. Now, maybe others have a better motive in their minds, but uh, again, you know, taking a look at John's work especially, and look, if you have something to offer of your own, go right ahead. But uh, I got to be honest with you, I still don't have clarity on these three basic things that you would ask in any criminal investigation. Uh, Not from the official investigation, I haven't seen John's manuscript. But uh, <clears throat> guaranteed, whatever he went into, it was it was very, very deeply searched. So I'm curious if he came up with any of that. We know that he didn't uh, necessarily ascribe to a particular theory. So, but I wonder if he examined those three things. And I also would like to hear from Larry and Stu about that, uh, each in turn and from their own words. So anything that you would like to contribute to that uh, question? Um, I think Stu mentioned this earlier. Now, John did not go in that direction with this particular work. He uh, he concentrated on the evidence, uh, official as it was designated, and and then looked at it, you know, from that particular aspect. One thing about Munir buying the gun, and John brings this point up in in his manuscript, uh, is that Munir was already in trouble with the law in uh, November of 1966. He he, he was a registered alien. He was. Uh, arrested for selling marijuana and uh, as such even though he was only 17 at the time he was uh, committed for the felony he was tried as an adult and convicted so he appealed and in may of 1967 the judge set aside the uh, the conviction and his case was transferred to the juvenile court system and in january 1967 the immigration and naturalization services ordered that Munir be deported so he appealed under the theory that because he was convicted and had been set aside, the INS had no authority to deport him. So he he was under the threat of deportation back to Palestine, which he did not want. Uh, and he found himself between, as John phrased it, a bigger rock and a hard place than before. If he was convicted of uh, committing a felony, purchasing the revolver, he'd be deported uh, from the United States regardless of the pending pot bus thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, the whole – he did – there seems to be a little question that he purchased the revolver. In fact – 
the story is that the they bartered back and forth. Uh, Meneer, uh, Sirhan, uh, Meneer's co-worker George Earhart and Earhart's friend William Price, and they set a price of uh, $25. Meneer only had 19 on him at the time, and Sirhan kicked in the extra six to come up with the total selling price. But in answer, you know, wrong uh, a long answer. John did not go into any of these other aspects of the case. He he strictly looked at the evidence and uh, did a, a, an extremely convincing job that one shooter wasn't involved. There had to be more than one shooter here in, in the pantry room area. I see. Okay, well, then I put the same question to Larry uh, with this, uh, you know, means, motive, and opportunity. Based on the aggregate results of what it is you, you've been able to uh, research for yourself and uh, take a look at, uh, from others' research, I, I'm curious if if we get any clarity on any of those things. Trying to look at this case because, as I said, maybe it's me, and maybe it's because I haven't gone as deeply into this as I obviously have the JFK case. Um, but it just seems obvious to me that we don't have, whether it's through the the conviction, through the stories over the years through the various uh, easily debunkable conspiracy theories that Stu referenced, um, or it's through even John's work, do we have a clear answer altogether as far as means, motive, and opportunity or something approaching it, Larry? I think we could approach it if we if we keep it at a certain level. So certainly, if, if you listen to Sir Han himself, and, and believe him. And by the way, I, I would also suggest anybody that's serious about this, read Robert Kaiser's book, which contains much of the transcript of Sir Han's remarks immediately after his arrest. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, he's, he's in, interviewed for hours by two policemen, and that's all transcribed. And I think you will get a totally different picture of who Sir Han is and how bright he was and how cunning he was and how in control he was and if you think he had had lost his memory or didn't remember anything you would be impressed by the fact that the policeman that took him into custody at the ambassador uh he memorized his patrol number and repeated it to him later uh showing pretty darn good memory uh in any event if we listen to sir han and look at what we know he did we know he did have a problem with RFK. He did have Middle Eastern issues. He had anti-Israeli issues. There's just no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. He know in his own words, unless everything in the world is made up, he had an issue with RFK. He also was not at all bashful about talking to people that he met about that. Uh, he did circulate in at a local community college among uh, other Middle Eastern students, uh, some friends with his older brother. Uh, he did circulate among people who would have heard his opinions. Uh, he also was not loath to talk about his new mental abilities. And so what I would give you that in terms of motives and means, if nothing else, he broadcast the fact that he would have been a useful tool. Now, I'd love to tell you exactly, I mean, I can give you a handful of ideas and, and do and in the essays about who would have found that useful and who right. would have cultivated him and who could have used him for a broader agenda. And that becomes clear when you detail 
the fact that, that people were manipulating and guiding him and using him all the way into the pantry that night. Mm-hmm. But you also had to add in the fact he had actually been seen at the ambassador the Sunday before in the area of the pantry. So if you just you get away from all of that innocent stuff, <laughs> you can go towards a motive and a means and an opportunity. And I think that's what I probably spell out in most detail in the essays is the opportunity of how he was guided along that evening from point to point and actually circumstances and people, the same three people that we're talking about were seen right outside the entrance that would have let them into the pantry walkway. Uh, So you, you see the opportunity developed that evening, which just led them all into the perfect spot, unfortunately. Um, Fair enough. So there yeah. you go. <laughs> okay. Well, look, I'll, I'll do this, and I saved this specifically for Stu, by the way, <laughs> to ask the same question, you know, uh, how it is that we can clarify the the very basic things like i said means motive and opportunity and and after this i'm going to call on gary and then we we may indeed call this a night um Stu, I, but i add an addendum to this for specifically for you <laughs> we have a contradiction here though if we can from the official evidence mostly but then again from additional research because we need it here there's holes and not just, you know, in the entryway and uh, in the wall that we can't account for, but that's another story. Um, quite frankly, you, you, you have means, motive, and opportunity that maybe you could ascribe to Sirhan Sirhan. You could say that he is certainly not an innocent party in the events of that night. Um, problem is, though, that when we line it up with some of the work like John Hunt did, and some of the work like you and Larry have done outside of the official records, right? Um, we have a bit of a contradiction here. Because although we can say that uh, we, we have a culpable individual who has definitely sat in prison for, gee, let's do some math. Um, is that 54 years about? Okay, maybe so. But uh, it appears as though maybe some other people could have been involved that was never discovered and well maybe it was discovered but maybe it was meant not to be discovered bit of a contradiction here um because at the end of the day we are still stuck with a question in my mind where we don't have a solid investigation we don't have a solid answer and even though you could kind of get a motive in there and people have called Sirhan Sirhan, you know, America's first actual domestic terrorist, uh, or not domestic, excuse me. <laughs> Sorry, wrong topics, too. Um, not the original domestic terrorist, but one of the first terrorists on, you know, American soil to do something of significance like this because it was motivated by an agenda that has something to do with, guess what, an asymmetrical response of violence to make a point. Um And I'm not saying that I discount that possibility, but I don't automatically default to it because I've seen how that's been used in different ways. So we have some open questions here. And even with the work of of many people diligently doing their best to cover the minutiae, 
we still have a lot of questions. We don't have, a, in my mind anyway, a clear-cut result here that we can say, you know, despite the official story, despite the fact that the LAPD was, you know, quite notorious uh, at many times in history for not necessarily investigating things thoroughly, for going after an answer they already have in their minds to begin with, and uh, sort of manipulating and forcing evidence into their box to make the puzzle work. Um, What are we left with here, Stu? Means, motive, and opportunity, and the contradiction that even if you can successfully say that Sirhan Sirhan is certainly not innocent, you still have the open problem of who else is truly involved, although kind of suspicious that somebody purchased a gun that really shouldn't have been purchasing a gun that, yeah, did have troubles, and I'm glad Gary brought that up, because that plays a role into maybe how much he wanted to interact with the police, but then again, a lot of open questions still, so Stu, I leave the very complicated additional question (laughs) to means, motive, and opportunity uh, with with this addendum, what, what what are your thoughts? Well, here's what I say. First of all, I'd echo a lot of what Barry and Larry just said. And where to me there's a gap, it's not so much in Sirhan's motive, means, and opportunity. It's about those people that Larry describes as being in the company of Sirhan that seem to align, and at least I think is worthy of investigation with his brothers Mm -hmm. and we know as larry said and again you can go in more than one place i'll give you one example during the trial you know sirhan again as larry said was in more control of his himself he wasn't a, a lunatic the way he's portrayed as he was brighter than what he's portrayed as Mm -hmm. but there were certain ways that you can really pick and eat away at his temper paint him as sexually frustrated and paint him as being not bright Mm -hmm. and there was a point in the trial jury was out of the it was day 18 i think it was and his lawyers who it's a whole other story talk about incompetent defense Mm -hmm. um there's a point where he's they're starting to themselves not maliciously touch on all of those angles and Sirhan gets really upset and he starts asking to be basically either to be found guilty or to be his own representative and he basically flat out says at one point in response to the judge that he killed Robert Kennedy with motive and premeditation Mm -hmm. Uh, and he said and uh, at a forethought for 20 years and people look at that and they say well there you go he's nuts well subtract 20 from 1968 and you get to 1948 right. and I'm not going to say Sirhan himself said this is what he meant he meant that he was very personally hung up on the Israeli issue on more than one occasion including the David Frost He had held Robert Kennedy up as to be a hero for the downtrodden and felt that Bobby Kennedy's more recent comments about support for Israel turned him and angered him. But clearly he had help, and the question is, 
were there other people who were turned and angered? And that's where if I had a chance right now and people are still alive, mm -hmm. that's where I dig. What about the motive, for instance, of his family? Were his family members as upset about the Arab-Israeli conflict and America's orientation towards it as Sirhan was? There's some suggestion that his old – one of his older brothers actually continued – and wanted to do harm to Richard Nixon later over similar issues. And so, again, Sirhan advertised it, as Larry said. I'm interested in the motive, means, and opportunity of the people who appear, and they might not be. Again, you got to dig. you got to investigate. I would start with the family, and I'd be asking about their orientation and the degree to which they were inflamed over issues related to the Arab-Israeli conflict. And again, I would go after an interview Munir, and I would go back to Sirhan. You've made your motives clear, you know, Sirhan, but what's not clear is why you would cover for people and spend a longer time in prison and have a harder time justifying your role when you could inject your own opinions about this and help us solve the case. I don't know if it'll work, but that's where I would go. If I could investigate right now, I would organize a grand jury and I would dive right into I, my focus at first. Would, certainly it would be the stuff that John Hunt right. and Gary elucidated. But then I'd ask, okay, if, you're, if, if you were a conscious member, a winning member of a shooting attempt, but you know you didn't fire into the person's head, why are you covering for other people this late in the game? Um, and right. that, to me, is, is is the more interesting question. Well, certainly, uh, certainly one of the key questions. And again, uh, I think that people that read the work that you and Larry put together will find themselves asking that question. I think that... Uh, if if it is represented as I understand it, because again I haven't seen John's manuscript, uh, but John Hunt's manuscript, if if it indeed shows, look, fact is that looking at the brass tacks here, looking at the evidence uh, in in a uh, extremely meticulous manner, gets you to the idea that there there must, by logical conclusion, be a conspiratorial act here. Not necessarily describing the conspiracy, but just establishing that alone is of value. I mean, where does this leave us? And I, I kind of go to Gary Murph for the last comment of the evening uh, because, you know, we, we, we have run over time a bit. And I, I do want to make sure that we get all this in. Uh, I'll, I'll let Larry add, you know, if there's any final thoughts he has on all this. Because, again, th this is mainly the uh, Larry Hancock collection uh, and and kind of a well a bit of a supplement because again there is no official book from Larry on this although if you go to the Mary Farrell website and I'll give you the link for it uh, you can study what what is that title again Larry uh, incomplete justice incomplete justice correct okay I I didn't want to get it wrong I thought that's what it was but thank you <laughs> and I will give you guys the link to it I know I already have it bookmarked but anyway. Uh, I may also give you a couple of other additional reference links. And everybody who's on the show tonight, I'll give you uh, places to contact them and everything else. 
uh, including Larry-Hancock.com, which is Larry's website, and uh, Stu Wexler's connection on uh, social media. Gary Murr, I may have to uh, just, he said no problem giving out his email address. I may have to just give you guys that for now. Uh, but anyway, Gary, your uh, your your comments on what have been dis- what has been discussed uh, over the past two hours, and uh, you know, and and if there's anything that we missed that you feel is of importance, by all means, put it in here because uh, I'd like to get the last major uh, uh, comment from you. Again, thanks for the invitation, gentlemen. I, I've enjoyed it. I think the bottom line here is that John Hunt has done an incredible amount of work to absolutely prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's conspiracy involved in this particular incident. And so using that as, as its basis, then uh, as Stu indicated, we we must carry forward. Uh, my hope is that people get to see John's book, understand what was involved, what John went through to produce this book. And I think once you read it, you cannot turn a blind eye to the fact that there was conspiracy involved here. And hopefully it opens some doors, but we'll have to wait and see. Right, and just for the record, I mean, you you are involved uh, uh, with with editing, and uh, you know, hopefully, bringing this uh, book to fruition, right? Correct. Okay. Oh, Chuck, he he was involved in more. Stu and I both did some edit work with John, okay. and then we got it to the point where here's a fantastically long book with 400 illustrations, and both of our minds are broken, and Gary. <laughs> to step in and, like, save us. It's like a baseball game when the bases are loaded and, you know, there's no batter. Like, how do we get out of it? And that's where Gary showed up. And I think then Larry's mentioned this to me before. I I would hope that regardless of which particular format the book comes out in, John, there was so much involved in this that we have to generate some type of addendum where you can see all of the things that that John collected, like, John has photographs in the manuscript, photographs that I, I couldn't leave. And when I first looked at the manuscript, I forget how many illustrations were in there. It literally was hundreds. In an attempt to pare it down to something more manageable, such as 90 to 100 instead of two or 300, there's so many things we had to leave out. But there's photographs in there that people have never seen uh, other than John, uh, unless you take the time to travel to California. No one obviously took that time in, in the past right, mm-hmm. from a research point of view. So hopefully if the book is in, published in some format, we can generate an addendum, perhaps a website, perhaps a link where people can go and look at all of this work that John did. Well, somebody could easily host a, like, John, you know, John Hunt uh, uh, addendum file, and you could make it available for download, uh, you know, and obviously get the web address with the book, right? So this right. way you can go right. look at it for yourself to uh, to see the, the, uh, the actual, well, let's just call them exhibits. Here, because that's what it would be, right? I mean, you're talking about a lot of photographic evidence, uh, probably some documentation, uh, and and a bunch of other things that could have easily been in the, uh, you know, in in the uh, photo section of the book, say. But for the sake of printing, maybe it's not available. And you know, thankfully, we have this technology now where if people want to go get it, they can go get it if they know where to find it. So that's always a possibility, and. Uh, you know, many people like myself own websites. We we could easily host it in multiple places. You know, it's a possibility. And uh, is this being done in uh, cooperation with Lancer still, or is that is that not happening? Do we know? Uh, De- Deborah JFK Lancer has the publishing contract. Okay. Um, and has been working on it. Unfortunately, Deborah's run into some health problems. We thought she 
she'd actually begin formatting it, which is a huge challenge, as Gary points out. I mean, right. even even with that many illustrations, how to integrate that many exhibits into a book is challenging. Right. Uh, so she's been working on it, but that has really slowed her down. But she has she has the commitment to publish it. It's just it's it's a challenging publication. Plus, she has her own challenges. <laughs> now, understandable, and don't we all at this point, you know? But uh, hopefully, this will see the light of day very soon. But again, in the meantime, you'll be able to uh, take a look at the work that Larry and Stu did. Um, Stu, is there anything else we should look at as a resource or anything? And uh, we're going to get out of here. But again, Larry-Hancock.com is where you can take a look at uh, Larry's work and his blog, etc. Uh, keep track of what Stu Wexler is doing, and I promise you that uh, Stu is always working on some stuff that I am interested in. So you need to do that, and uh, maybe in the future we'll have more stuff for Gary Murr. But you know, I, I will offer you guys this email address, which he gave me permission to do with the show notes. So, Stu, um, is there anything else that we should look at for a resource, or are we pretty much covered here? I think you're covered. Mary Farrell in general has the documentation, the primary documentation in a section on RFK. Mm-hmm. You can always go to Harold Weisberg's archive at Hood College. I mean, his primary focus is usually JFK, but Harold collected everything and everything. Um, and then uh, John's book and any of the resources associated when it comes out and Larry's specific essays on the website are fan- on, on Mary Farrell are fantastic. Well, absolutely, and I appreciate all you guys for taking this time with me tonight because we did go a little bit over, and there were a few efforts getting things together <laughs> tonight. Um, but uh, I think we've done a, a very uh, a very solid piece of work here where people have much to explore if they really want answers. And uh, quite frankly, again, the 1960s, you know, especially 1968, but many years in the 1960s and that entire time period... Uh, The assassinations, the upheaval, the change, well, it does seem as though some of those stories remain the same. But uh, believe me, that was a unique time. And I say again, the decapitation of the leadership of uh, what could have been a significant change in this country will always and forever be one of those things that I I concentrate on. And you guys, I mean, absolutely have done uh, amazing work. Everybody who was on the show tonight. Larry Hancock, first and foremost, Stu Wexler, and Gary Murr. Now, Gary Murr's name you might not know, but if I have anything to do with it, tell you what, you're going to hear from him some more on my show, and it might be about some topics you're not necessarily aware of. Anyway, I want to thank everybody for listening, and remember, I am merely Ocelli. All of you are indeed the effect. Good night.